All right, so it's been a couple of weeks, but we are picking back up. I, I initially, last time I was here, I preached two weeks ago on the 19th, I believe, of December. And we talked about uh, not wanting to, because the importance of Romans 9 through 11, but chapter 11 has a lot of significance to it. In fact, there are, which I will explain a little bit in the message, there are like frameworks, like end times theology, which is called eschatology. There are eschatological frameworks that have been created about who the Jews are, what will happen to the Jews, and some of them stem from what is said in this particular chapter. So I didn't want to begin it and then stop and begin it. I really want to make sure that, Lord willing, we can go straight through so that it all connects. I don't have to do many reviews every two weeks to remind us of where we were. So today, hopefully, I want to just do that again so that we can get it because this is a very important chapter. It's the last chapter in the book of Romans before God gets us to the application for everyone. Once you get in Romans chapter 12, it becomes, you know, in your Bible, you might have a heading that says like marks of the true Christian or some type of Christian living. Apart from that, most of what the argument has been up to chapter 12 is making sure you understand theologically who you are. And then he explains, okay, what does God expect from you? That's always the case. If you look at from the Old Testament to God bringing Israel out of slavery, it's always, let me explain to you who you are. You're my people. I've chosen you. Now let me tell you how you live. So this letter, 16 chapters, follows the same pattern. Let me spend 11 chapters explaining who you are, and then we'll start talking about how do you live. So this is the last somewhat chapter of who you are, and it, it, it takes a dramatic turn from what we've heard thus far. In fact, on one level, the whole letter of Romans, at least about the Jews, is seemingly negative. For those of us who remember the book of Romans, whether what I've taught or what you've read, the, the letter has been somewhat negative towards the Israelites, the Jews. You've read, we remember passages like this in Romans 2. Paul says this, talking directly to those who would be Jewish who are hearing the letter being read. Here's what he says in chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. He says this, now if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, the Mosaic law, and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor the law? Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Then he says this, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So if you're Jewish and you're hearing this, you're like, well, dad, tell us how you really feel. The name of God. People are mocking the name of God because of you. The people of God. 
on one level, the whole letter of Romans is seemingly negative towards the Jews. He says this in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whether the law says, the only people who care about the law are Jews. Whenever you read your Bible and you hear the word law or the argument that's being made about the law, Paul is talking to the Jews primarily. Now, there is application for us when he says that, but his primary focus is talking to people who think, if I obey the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, then I can go to heaven. And this whole letter is Paul systematically taking away the confidence in anyone who is Jewish's ability to say, I get to go to heaven because I've kept the law. And in reality, it's like, no, you don't. The only people that are justified before God, which essentially means you get to go to heaven because you're not guilty for sin of those who believe in Jesus. So Paul, on behalf of God, is consistently explaining to them You are not who you think you are. In Romans 3, 19 and 20, he says this. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were subject to the law. Those would be Jews. But through the righteousness that comes by faith, if those who are of the law are heirs, family. So if you keep the law and you're the family of God, you're in the family of God, then faith is made empty and the promise nullified. So if you can be righteous with God because of your obedience to what he said solely, then the whole notion of having faith in Jesus is nullified. Doesn't work. Doesn't count. He says, for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. I'm not reteaching every one of these. I'm just trying to help you see this has been somewhat of a negative perspective if you're Jewish. Romans 4, he says this, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who were of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath. Now, see, we didn't grow up under the law, so this seems like somewhat foreign to us. But if you've been to, there's no real good way to describe it except this. If you've been to another country, say you've gone to a country where they just drive on the other side of the road. The steering wheel is on the right side. They drive on the right, the left, the opposite side. They, They do things differently. Their turn signals work differently. Their culture is different. It's totally different from how you are, and then you're told, no, this is the way that you live from now on. There's an adjustment. There's an adjustment period. If you've ever just driven, I'm not talking about bumper cars. You know, when you go to the theme park, you'll be on the, they got, tell me if you've ever been to the, it's just awkward. It's like, wait a minute, this is, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be steering wheel over here. When we used to be on that side of the road, almost got into an accident because didn't know which side of the road I was supposed to be on. We were in India, and I didn't know what was going on. At one point, I just thought they have no driving laws here. They just have none. I was like, it's... And I'm like, hey, watch out. Ain't no problem in India, brother. I was like, hey, it's a problem to me. We almost fell out the car when you turned. That's because you're big, brother. That's what he said to me. 
I miss them. <laughs> You're used to a way of life, and then you find out, no, 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 that's totally wrong now. It changes. It, what they say, rocks your world. Passage after passage, Paul is laying out an indictment against the Jews for thinking that they can get to heaven by their own obedience instead of Christ. Now, this indictment is not just towards the Jews. Paul's concern, his greatest concern was at this time in in human history, since Jesus has come, I need to help all these people who were taught that this is what you do, which was accurately taught, but now that Jesus has come, everything changes, and now we have to do this. You can't rely on the law anymore because you can't do it perfectly. That's the point. That's for the Jews, but we also are not exempt from having to consider, hey, how is he talking to us? In the book of Galatians, in one verse, Paul makes it clear that even those who profess to believe in Jesus can have a law of their own. He says this in Galatians 3, verse 3, talking to the, to the church in Galatians, the believers. He says, are you so foolish After beginning by the spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? So you profess faith in God and are obeying God in the spirit. You're motivated to honor the Lord by what you do, by the spirit's work. And now you're trying to do it differently. Now you're trying to go back to a way of life that has nothing. We've already communicated clearly that's not the Lord. It is possible to believe in Jesus, but then to live in a law that you create, that we create, that we're comfortable with. Instead of giving Jesus the obedience he requires, we give him obedience that we're okay with. I've met Christians in my day who have said things like this. Well, I don't care. I'll never forgive them. I'll never forgive that person for what they did. I don't care. I'll never talk to them again. It's like, okay, I get that you've been hurt, but do you know the foundation of our faith is based on forgiveness? How can any genuine Christian say with conviction, I will never forgive this person? The Matthew 6, 13 and 14, Jesus made it clear, if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will our Father forgive you your trespasses. It is possible to be a Christian and create your own law and live by that instead of the law that Christ requires. So this is not just a warning for the Jews. It's one that we all have to make sure that I am not holding on or doing things unwilling to live according to what God says because fill in the blank. Because it's hard or I don't like it or it's not fair. It wasn't any fairer for Jesus to die for us when he did nothing. So there's going to be times when we feel the pain of that faith. We feel some of the suffering of the faith as a Christian is extending the forgiveness that we've given from God to others who, like us, didn't deserve it. There are times where you and I will be called to forgive other people who don't deserve it because they're not changing how they're treating you They're not sorry for what they did. And if we're honest, we can be like that towards God sometimes, too. 
This indictment is not just for the Jews. It can be for us. But in the formation of this letter, it's towards the Jews, and it seems very negative. Romans 9, 6 and 7, Paul says this. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced by Isaac, traced through Isaac. He's telling people who think I'm a descendant of Abraham that, no, you're actually not if you don't have faith in Jesus. This is a blow. So this is a blow to what we would call today their self-esteem, right? Paul would definitely be canceled in this culture. He was canceled in this culture, for real. We're being honest. Cancel culture is not new. It's just we just gave it a name. God cancels cultures too. That's a different sermon though. Romans 10, Paul says this, but I ask, did they, speaking of the Jews, not hear? Yes, they did. Their voice has gone out into the whole earth and their words to the end of to, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. And Isaiah says boldly, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me, speaking of non-Jewish people. And then he says, but to Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. So if you're Jewish and you're hearing this, you're like, now I'm disobedient and defiant? I don't like this letter if I'm Jewish. <laughs> and if you're a Gentile hearing this, you're growing in self-righteousness. You all rejected Jesus and we accepted him. There was a lot of infighting in churches then. Because Gentiles felt like now we're God's people. And if you think, if you really think about the history where Jews were always God's people and were looking down at Gentiles, now the tables have turned and now the Gentiles can appear to be looking down and probably happily so. There are plenty of accounts if you look at some of the historians like Josephus and Tacitus and other who will talk about these dynamics of Gentiles self-righteously judging Jews. Some of the most famous theologians of, our, of, of, of history like Martin Luther was considered anti-Semitic. This letter seems negative towards the Jews. And it's a challenge until we get to chapter 11. When we get to chapter 11, it is the first time in the letter where you get a hold up Wait a minute. Not so fast, Gentiles. Not so fast. Up to this point, almost everything has been negative towards the Jews and about the Jews. And now in this chapter, God is going to turn the tables to make sure that there's no misunderstanding towards the nation that he chose to send the Messiah from. So in Romans 11, 
Paul begins by saying this. Verses 1 through 6 is our passage today. I ask then, has God rejected his people? If you've heard everything he said up to this point, they were probably people that were like, yeah. His answer, absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Well, don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads? He pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to take my life. But what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed the knee down to Baal. In the same way, then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. Three, three observations from this passage. The first is that Jews will be saved. Let's read verses 1 and first half of verse 2 again. I asked them, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. This statement is not merely a theological reality, but a practical one. Paul states the obvious here that God has not rejected his Israel, and I am proof of that. I am proof that Jews will be saved. And he makes sure that they understand that he is a true Israelite. He's not a half-breed. He's not a Samaritan. He's not, you know, father was Greek, mother was Jewish. He's like, no, I am as Jewish as they come, and I have been included into God's plan of salvation through Jesus. He starts off, I'm an Israelite. He said, I too am an Israelite. Then he says, a descendant of Abraham. So all the things that the Jewish people who would hear this would claim, well, I'm an Israelite, descendant of Abraham. He said, from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the original tribes. One of the 12, Jacob's sons. This description for us is just like, okay, cool. But for them, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. I'm as Jewish as they come. And he says, I'm saved. So God cannot forsake, reject his people, because then I wouldn't be here talking to you now. I am proof. But then Paul makes a distinction. At the beginning of verse 2, he makes a distinction. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, foreknew essentially means he chose beforehand or he understood them, understands beforehand. It gives the impression that you are befriended or acquainted with someone in a familiar way ahead of time. 
So he foreknew these people. And he's saying they'll be saved. They'll be saved. This is what he gets at. He says, listen, God has not rejected his people because I'm included in the plan of salvation. There are other Jews in Paul's day that believe in Jesus. Now, in our day and age, the salvation of the Jews is often thought of eschatologically. There is a theological framework usually known as dispensational premillennialism that talks about, that sees Revelation, the book of Revelation, as a seven-year period where the church is raptured out. There's a seven-year period, and during that seven years is when the Jews will be saved. That's a, a theological framework to understand Revelation. I personally do not agree with that framework. I do not agree with that at all, but it does create dynamics. It's created challenges, and it gives the impression that the salvation of the Jews is largely an end times reality. We got to wait for revelation, and then all the church will be gone from the suffering. Mm, that's a different discussion. But Jews are being saved well before. In an article on October 30th, 2018, an AP article gave an account of then, Mike, then Vice President Mike Pence had a rabbi come up and pray after there was a terrible tragedy. Um, it was a massacre of, of Jewish synagogues. And Mike Pence had this rabbi come up and, and pray. And another rabbi, a very popular rabbi on Twitter, tweeted this. For the record, Messianic Judaism is a branch of Christianity and offensive to the Jewish community. Lena Epstein, who was on staff with Mike Pence, who was also Jewish, knew this, and so did Pence and his team. This wasn't ecumenical. It was an insulting political stunt. Another very popular Jewish some social commentator said this, two days after the worst anti-Semitic massacre ever on American soil, the vice president appears at an event with the group whose main purpose is to proselytize to Jews and convert them to Christianity. So as you see, Jews believe in Jesus even now. Paul's words are true. In an article by The Atlantic, speaking of an organization called Revive Israel, the article says this, after New Testament readings, talking about how this Revive Israel, they're in Israel, this organization, after New Testament readings, and as the band plays songs about Jesus' return, Entrader, which is the name of the one who leads it, stepped across the circle of worshipers to tell me of a miracle, in quotations, that everyone on his ministry team, save one, was an Israeli citizen. He seems to want to convince me, not just as a reporter, but as a Jewish one, 
that Messianic Jews like him represent the genuine Judaism, an authentic Israeliness that must be recaptured in order for Israel to be restored, in quotation marks. For that to happen, its wayward people must literally come to Jesus, a process he and his followers believe will lay the groundwork for the Messiah, the one Israel, he insists, failed to recognize the first time to return. The article goes on to say this, though there are an estimated 175,000 to 250,000 Messianic Jews in the U.S. and 350,000 worldwide, according to various counts, they are a tiny minority in Israel, just 10 to 20,000 by some estimates, but growing according to both its proponents and critics. Messianic Jews believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and that the Bible prophesies that God's plan is for him to return to Jerusalem, prevail in an apocalyptic battle with the Antichrist, and rule the world from the Temple Mount. Unlike Jews for Jesus, which is a different organization, which focuses on bringing Jews into churches, Messianic Jews seek to make Jews believers in Jesus while still maintaining congregations that identify as Jewish and observe Jewish customs and holidays. So here we have concrete proof that there are Jews who currently live for Jesus, making Paul's statement fact. Jews will be saved. Second observation. Second half of verse 2 to verse 4. Here's what Paul says. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I am the only one left, and they are trying to take my life. But what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. Second observation, the confidence that some Jews will be saved is that Jews have always been saved, even in the most difficult of times. Now, you may not be familiar with what's being said here. So let me just briefly make sure we understand the narrative that Paul is pulling from. All right, he's pulling from 1 Kings 18 and 19. This is a story of Ahab becoming king, marrying Jezebel. And Ahab was said, said, the scripture said that he angered God and sin did more evil than all the other kings. That Ahab was the worst king and that he set up, there were 850 false prophets that were leading people, the Israelites, to worship Baal. Elijah, at that point, was the only main prophet. So this is a story that to me, I love this story where Elijah shows up and tells Ahab to go get all of his prophets, all 850 of them, to set up an altar, sacrifice a bull, all right, and then call down on Baal to burn it. And so they do this, and they're calling out for Baal. Nothing happens. They start cutting themselves because that was their ritual. See, God cut his son. Demons want you to cut yourself. 
So they're calling out all this stuff, and then, and then Elijah's just mocking them. Hey, scream louder. This is it. I'm not making it. This is in the text. It said maybe, maybe he's sleeping right now. This is in the text. A little louder for those in the back. He's just mocking these folks. Nothing happens. And then he tells all the Israelites, come forward. He, they watch him build an ark, put 12 stones around it, representing the tribes of Israel, to dig, a, dig ditches around it so it can hold about two gallons of water. He takes the, 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 the animal, cuts it up, sacrifices it, puts it there, tells them to pour water on it three times, so much so that all the water is filled up on the side. Then he cries out to God and says, the Lord of Abraham, the God of Abraham, prove to these people that you are the God of Israel, the one true God. Fire comes down. Everything. It said, it said the flames licked up even the water. It was dry as a bone, pun intended. And then when the people saw that, they bowed down and said, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. And then he said, go get round up all 850 false prophets. Don't let one of them get away. And they slaughtered all of them. News got back to Ahab's wife, Jezebel. And she said, as sure as I am alive today, if you are not dead by this time tomorrow, may the gods deal with me harshly. And surprisingly, he got afraid. It always it boggles my mind. Like, how do you watch God do that? And then this one woman says she's going to kill you, and you're afraid. I would have been like, "Hey, look, let me let me text you where I'm at. Let me drop it in you." <laughs> they ain't text back then, but let me send you this pigeon <laughs> with coordinates. Meet me right here. Bring <laughs> I, the Lord. Just look. The Lord let Elijah. Make it not let it not rain for him. And like that dude got a little bit of power with him. I'm not worried about this. Female. You give me a death threat. Cool. I'm going to brush the shoulders off. A la Jay-Z. <laughs> but he's afraid. He's afraid. And he cries out to God. Look. Your people. He complains to God. These are your people. You know, it's funny. He does the opposite of kind of what Moses did. Because Moses was trying to prevent God from destroying the people. And Elijah was like, look, these, your people are the problem. <laughs> said, look, they're trying to take my life. I'm the only one left. And God says this. He says, I have left 7,000 that have not bowed the knee down to Baal. Now this story, this portion of the scriptures, they give us two perspectives to understand. Two perspectives that we need to pay attention to. One, the first deals with salvation, and the other deals with the way we see things. Here's the first one. Here's the first perspective. Paul's using this Old Testament narrative to show the Jews that even in an unthinkable situation where the vast majority of them have rejected God, God still had some set aside that did not, would not. Now think about this. The prophet of God is complaining to God about the people of God. 
This is during a time where the Jews thought obedience to the law is what made them special. And this story is a reminder to any of the Jews listening to Paul say this of their inability to keep the law. They easily would worship another God. You know, deconstruction of the faith didn't start in the last three years. Deconstruction of the faith started in Genesis 3. Jews were constantly walking away from the faith. But the Lord says this, I have left 7,000 for myself. The language is important. The language. One word, really important. The word left. I have left 7,000 for myself. God is saying, I, I left. I made sure a child shall lead them. I made sure that there are people here, 7,000 in number. The number seven is also significant. It's the perfect number. I've left a perfect number of Jews there. I left. I made sure there are people there who did not bow down to Baal. And so Paul says in the same way, God has people who are Jews now that he made sure that he foreknew would not reject Jesus. So the first analogy, when he uses this analogy, is to help them understand salvation. God provides it. God preserves it. I have left. Not, not as a bunch of people who chose, I have left. I made sure. But then there's a different perspective. There's a second analogy that I think is for, that has nothing to do with salvation in particular. That's for us. A way that I think we can learn from this narrative. It serves another purpose. You know, it's common for us to assume that what we are seeing happening is all that is happening. It's just in our nature to think like what we see, no matter how small our circle is, this is everything that's happening. This happens a lot to people. It's, it's, it seems, seems, seems trendy for people to announce that they're no longer a, a Christian and they have experienced some church hurt that is probably very legitimate. And I, I will never say that no church hurt doesn't genuinely hurt. But I'm just going to say this to anyone here watching, whatever, whoever sees this, wherever. There is no church hurt that is worth walking away from the faith. You may need to walk away from some of these people. You may need to walk away from your church. You may need to walk away from your denomination. But don't walk away from the Lord. If for no other reason, because he let the father hurt him for you. 
Like Jesus is the one who experienced the greatest church hurt because it was his own people that rejected him and that went to the Romans and said, crucify this dude. If anyone knows about church hurt, it's Jesus. And he still said, it's worth it. Don't walk away from the faith because you've been hurt by people who profess to believe it. You will not find an any credible translation that Christians will not sin against each other. There is an expectation that because we're believers, we're just not going to sin against each other, and it's just not true. I've sinned against plenty of people as the pastor, and I've been sinned against plenty, and life goes on. We work through it. You, you, everyone in here has someone that they love, and they've been offended by that person. <laughs> Shoot, you can have a pet, and your pet get on you. We got a cat. People still can't believe I have a cat. Sometimes I can't believe it either. I'm too gangster for a cat, but it is what it is. Man, my cat, Merck, he's a little over a year. Man, this dude is hissing now. He's hissing. Now, he hasn't hissed at me yet. And when he does, things are going to change. Because you're not hissing at me in my house. You don't eat unless we provide it for you. But he's hissing. He's hissed at my wife a few times. And then when cats hiss, it ain't like a friendly thing. It's like, it look like they look like little Dracula. It's like, he's hissed at my wife, hissed at my oldest son, and my oldest son, that's his man. He loves Santiago the most, sleeps in his remote. He's hissed at him. So I know my time is coming, but when it comes, my reaction will be different than theirs. Oh, we're going to remember around here. I don't care if you're a cat or not. I ain't walking no eggshells in my house for no animal. I love them, but hey, they said if you love something, let it go. And if it returns. That's probably not helpful. I love my cat for real. Uh, hold the commentary till after the message. Studio audience can laugh, but we don't need to hear you. It's not your turn yet. From Elijah's point of view, this is his perspective, from his POV, his point of view, just like we all have our own perspectives. Everyone's abandoned God, and he's the only one left. Here's the whole narrative, four verses, 1 Kings 19. Let me step back, let's look at the whole little narrative. Here's what Elijah says to God. Verse 14 of 1 Kings, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, he replied. But the Israelites have abandoned your covenant torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazael as king of Aram. You are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meloha, Mehola, Mehola, go ahead, man, as prophets in your place. Then Jehu put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that is not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. We need to take this to heart. And here's why. Because we, like Elijah, often think 
the only thing that is happening is what we're aware of. Mm -hmm. And often we don't see God working. There are many challenges. COVID has presented many challenges, new fears, new levels of anxiety. We've seen in the last two years more racial and political animosity among people who profess to believe in Jesus. People who Revelation 7 says will be around the throne worshiping Jesus now can't stand each other. We see people leaving the faith. Their struggles and marriages, domestic violence has been up the last two years. Divorces have been up. Abuse towards children has been up. People have been forced to be together and thought that they loved each other until they couldn't go to work and get away from each other. And now you have this dynamic where people hate each other. Fear of political decisions. It almost feels like God is just watching this play out. But he's not watching, he's working for us and in us. And oftentimes when things are chaotic or we're going through challenging situations, God isn't bringing it about because he wants us to change something. He's bringing it about because he's trying to change us. We're too observant of what they're doing and not what he may want to do in us. If we forget that there's more going on than what I see, we'll be like Elijah. Man, everything's falling apart. Everything's falling apart. Every time I turn around, somebody else is walking away from the faith. I'm aware of someone who's getting ready to announce that they're, gonna, that they're no longer a Christian. And this individual has had significant influence over a lot of people over the last 20 years. And I'm aware that this person is, is going to make it's almost like these people are having a press conference like LeBron, I'm taking my talents to Miami. I'm taking my faith outside of Christianity. This is going to offend and hurt a lot of people. And it's coming any day. And I'm watching them. I'm watching them on Facebook. Like, man, just say it, bro. Like, why are you still playing games with people? Just say it. I know it's coming. Only a few of us know. And we're like, all right. Now, I'm not connected to him that well, so it doesn't, won't have an impact on me. But it will on a lot of people. And it's going to be like, man, another one. This is all we see. Fear of COVID. Even if, the, even if the variant is mild. I pray every time I'm up here, like, Lord, please don't have me call. Somebody's gonna be <laughs> we can be like Elijah, like, oh, man, there's nothing. To, everything's happening. No one's doing. And it's like, no, I got 7,000. Everyone's not trying to kill you, Elijah. I got 7,000 that's going to ride with you. COVID is not going to destroy us, the church or this church. But I'm, I'm, I know I'm, I'm, I'm concerned, and I know Mike is concerned, and members of the leadership team, that a lot of us are like Elijah. Oh, man. Like, <laughs> no, the Lord is working. And most of the work is not going to be political or sociological. It's going to be individual. It's going to be in me, in you. And then with that work that he's doing in us, 
then we interact with others differently because of what he's doing in us because we believe something different. When the Bible said we do not grieve as the world grieves, I think it could also say we do not fear as the world fears. We do not fret, as the psalmist said. This narrative reminds us that we can be like Elijah from our point of view, but God is working. Do not let for a moment what's happening culturally in your family, in your circle of relationships, all the negative things that we see, the spike in anxiety, that God's not working. Because if you lose that, you'll lose eternal perspective. If you lose eternal perspective, you're going to lose hope. And if you lose hope, then you're going to lose faith. This analogy serves a dual purpose. It explains the analogy of salvation. God has people. God foreknew he has people ready to believe in him. He has people that he's chosen, that he's keeping as his own. But this also serves as a purpose of perspective. This analogy shows us that like Elijah, he thought he knew what the situation was. It's amazing to me. One of the things that's always amazing me, I'm always impressed with the boldness of people in the Bible towards God. I don't know about you. I'm just always impressed with it. Like you telling God this stuff, like God doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> Moses actually told God, no, I don't want to go talk to them. I don't, I don't speak real well. <laughs> you can't even stand in front of the Lord and see him and you telling him, no. He said, fine, I'm going to send your brother. He'll speak for you. Go do what I said. It's just amazing to me the boldness of people in the Bible. Mary told Jesus, hey, do something at the wedding. And he said, woman, it's not my time. She ain't even care. She said, whatever he does, tells you to do, do it. <laughs> He's like, Mary was aware of honor your mother and father. She was like, hey, do something at the wedding. They don't got no wine. He was like, well, I'm not, this ain't my time. Said, Man, whatever he said, do it. She ain't even care. He was like, no, I'm not supposed to do nothing right now. She's like, Man, whatever you get to. And sure enough, here it is. I just love it. I love the boldness. You know why I love it? Because God shows that he's okay with us expressing the human emotion, the angst, the struggle. Sometimes we act like God's like, man, who are you talking to like that? Nah, God can handle that. He can handle the Psalms are filled with like, where are you, Lord? Even Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? God can handle our fears, 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast your anxieties on the Lord. Do you know he never says that about any other sin, any other issue? I don't always think anxiety is sin, to be honest. He doesn't say cast your sexual morality, cast your anger, cast your lust, cast your fear. He says, cast your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. There's no Bible story where the moral of the story is to be like the character in the Bible. But there are stories where don't be like this character, though. Elijah thought he knew the whole situation like we can, and he was wrong. God is working, and God told him, I got people. I got people. So Jews will be saved. First observation, second observation, Jews have always been saved even in the most difficult time. Last observation. 
very quickly. Jews are also chosen by, to be saved by grace. Verses 5 and 6. In the same way, then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. This word remnant, remnant always means a small segment, a small portion. You guys know about the story of Gideon. With Gideon, I think he starts off with like 30,000 troops, and God strips him down to 300. 300 soldiers against an army that was incredibly big. And God said, nah, just these 300. And Gideon was like, huh? Like, I know, I know him. He's not even that good with the sword. I was like, nah, I'm always going to make it. You know why? Because the smaller the number, the greater it demonstrates my power. You think, man, why aren't more people Christians? It's like we're, we're outnumbered considerably in the world. And yet, we cause a considerable amount of disturbance in the world. You can't get around the world without dealing with Christ. Christians somewhere. The smaller remnant demonstrates God could have chosen. I mean, think he chose 12 guys and said, walk with me for three years. And then I'm going to send you out. 12 guys. Numbers are not impressive to God. The smaller the number, the greater the glory when he does magnificent things through them. So the remnant is a small subset, a microcosm in a larger group. God always has a remnant of people who believe. And by his grace, you and I are numbered among that remnant. So in the same way that that 7,000 in that tumultuous time with Elijah, I got some people. I got a remnant also. I got people that I foreknew I've chosen that belief. And he ends this, this portion by saying, not, not by grace. And the reason why he keeps emphasizing this is he wants to make sure, because works to the Jews meant the law. He has to bang this out so that they get it. Now, this is a, I'm not going to go down this road, but I want to say this. Today, theologically, we process works in ways that I don't think the Bible meant to process works. That's not, we, we process works differently. When he was talking about works biblically, he's making sure that the works are connected to the Jews who think that by obeying the Mosaic law that they are right before God. So all this language, he's not thinking of 21st century things. He's talking about to the Jews, it's not by works. The works to Paul meant the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, all the laws of the Old Testament. This is what he, he's hammering this down because these people have been trained to think their whole existence is based on works. Their whole acceptance of God is based on works. And on some level, on some level, it was until Jesus came. But now that Jesus has come, their whole acceptance of God is based on 
his work because he's the only one that could do it perfectly. We process works differently today. There's a lot of fighting over works and what that means. Believing in Jesus has never been a work. Since Abraham believed God and was credited as righteousness, it wasn't considered a work. But today it's considered a work by some people. Different conversation. Paul's main concern is that the Jews don't think that the works, which is the law, will get them into heaven. And for us, we have to make sure that we don't create a system of works that work for us, but don't cause us to sacrifice and obey God the way we should. For his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, we, we see a, a turn in the way that you're describing, the way you're describing the nation of Israel, your folks. And it's in this chapter where we get a not-so-fast Gentiles so that we see that you haven't rejected your people. You're just clarifying who your people are. And, and the historical way that some Jews related to you, based loosely by being born Jewish and living under the law that they didn't even choose to do. Jews did not choose the law. They were born into it. All of us do things because this is the way we grew up. It wasn't even a choice. Now, when we have our own families, we can choose our own traditions and our own ways of doing things, but all of us were born into a way of doing things that we had no choice in that doing that. Well, in Jesus, we have a choice. We're not born into Christianity. We make a decision based on the presentation of the truth. So Paul is telling them and us that our faith must be in Christ and any obedience comes as a result of that reality. I pray, Lord, that as we are aware or becoming aware that we, like Elijah, can evaluate the culture that we're in, the circumstances that we're in, and we can be overwhelmed, discouraged, afraid. We can think that everyone is, everything's falling apart. And inadvertently, just we don't think you're working or doing anything. You're just watching like a deist who thinks you just wound up the world and just watching it, watching it burn. When in reality, you are always working. People are getting saved that they never thought they would be saved, even as we speak. The church is, 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 is growing rapidly in, in Iran, a country that has some of the most significant oppression and persecution towards a rejection of Islam, especially in, in, in acceptance of Jesus. And yet the church there is doing amazing. Lord, you don't need the whole world. Billions and billions. You can take a couple thousand, a couple hundred thousand, and shake up the world.
Father, I pray that as we, as we work through this chapter and see your, your commitment to your people, even though that they've gone astray significantly and that you've allowed them to do that so that you can bring other people, the Gentiles, those of us, many of us in this room, to salvation. I pray that we would also see as a lesson for us that when things are going crazy, you're always working. Things are crazy right now, Lord, for us in many ways. And you're working. May, our, may your commitment to bring salvation to the Jews remind us of your commitment to bring us to eternity with you. <laughs>